Okay, welcome everyone to Drisha's full programming and the first part of a three session course on what can we learn from God, about God from the image of God in us by Rabbi Dr. Samuel Liebens. Dr. Sam Liebens is a philosopher at the University of Haifa and an adjunct faculty at Drisha. His first book is about Bertrand Russell and the philosophy of language. His second book, The Principles of Judaism, is a con contemporary exploration of the philosophical underpinnings of the Jewish faith. He's also a co-founder of the Association for Philosophy of Judaism. And without delay, I'll turn this to you, Dr. Lieben. Thank you very much, Evie. Uh, and you'll keep an eye on uh, on that Facebook stream yeah. to make sure. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Thank you. Perfect. So, um, yes, this is the first of three three classes, um, and 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 in a sense, I'm I'm following on from uh, a course that um, Rabbi Shamozukia, Rabbi Dr. Shamozukia taught last um, uh, last semester. Although you, it won't require that you were there. Indeed, I wasn't there, but he was interested in uh, different conceptions of uh, this notion that we were created that we human beings were created in the image of God. And um, I think his interest there was, uh, what does that mean about us? You know, what, what does it mean for us to be uh, What I'm gonna be asking is what does this mean about God? <laughs> what does it mean about God that we are in his image? Uh, what can we learn about God? Uh, from this notion that we are in his image. And I, I'm worried, truth be told, that I've bitten off more than I can chew for this first session. I want to get through too much, but we'll see, we'll see how we do. The starting point for me, for this whole course, um, is something that I read in the words of Rabbi Sachs. Um, and he's on my mind a lot at the moment, as I know he's on the minds of lots of people. He passed away, of course. This is this in this uh, today is actually the, the end of his shloshim, the end of the 30 days, uh, the first 30 days since he passed away. And in one of his books uh, called Celebrating Life, he he wrote the following uh, words. I'll read for you. He says, "For me, faith uh, is the belief." in the objective reality of the personal. The God heard by Abraham, Moses, and the prophets was not a tribal deity, group self-interest projected onto the sky, nor was he a member of the pantheon of paganism, a capricious spirit invoked to explain why things are as they are, some kind of pseudo-scientific construct rendered redundant by proper science. No, says Rabbi Sachs, the God our ancestors heard was the voice of reality as it responds to and affirms the personal, echoing our consciousness, telling us that we are not alone. I think the most important part of this for me uh, was just that first sentence. For me, faith is the belief in the objective reality of the personal. The idea is that behind the entire cosmos, behind the entire universe, um, we might think that we're living um, merely in a physical universe um, comprised of atoms and subatomic particles organized in certain physical configurations. No, says Rabbi Sachs, behind everything, behind all of the phenomena, exists this kind of objective person. And that's, that's the God uh, that Abraham, Moses and the prophets discovered, the person behind um, um, the phenomena. The phenomena sometimes look impersonal, but actually the universe is a personal place. And in, in Covenant and Conversation, um, which is uh, his long-running series on, on the weekly Parsha, he wrote the following words. That discovery, namely the discovery that we are in the image of God, was utterly new and explosive in its implications. It meant that the key to interpreting the universe was not force of power but the personal and the personal is anything 
but blind. Before I, I go on uh, to read the end of that quote, I'll tell you a, um, a story he tells in, in, uh, in developing some of these thoughts. He says, um, tells a story of Niels Bohr, who heard uh, some sort of uh, lecture. And at the end of the lecture, he said something like this. He said, uh, that was very nice. But you know, if any of us would never born, our scientific theories would probably be, be, be discovered by somebody else, right? So had I not been born, quantum physics would probably have been, it was out there to be discovered, quantum mechanics. Had Einstein not been born, somebody eventually would have figured out about the dilation of time and the relativity of space. It was there to be discovered. But says Niels Bohr, um, if Shakespeare hadn't been born, nobody would have written Hamlet and nobody would have written the sonnets. In a sense, they weren't there to be discovered in quite the same way that the theories of science that scientists uh, arrive at were there to be discovered. And the idea that Rabbi Sachs uh, wanted to take from that is there's a sense in which persons are less predictable than a physical universe. Uh, a physical universe runs according to these kind of objective physical laws, uh, but personhood you know, this is something that philosophers are aware of anyway. There is what's called the hard problem of consciousness. The hard problem of consciousness is a term um, coined by the Australian American philosopher, David Chalmers. And the problem is this, how do you explain using only the language of the physical sciences or the natural sciences, how do you explain the emergence of consciousness, namely a first person perspective, because scientific theories by their nature are framed in the third person. So it's all about how um, the material of the world uh, interacts with each other, described, so to speak, from outside, from some kind of objective view from nowhere, not in the first person, in the third person. Um, but the challenge is, uh, the challenge that David Chalmers lays down uh, for contemporary science is to explain, and he doesn't believe in principle uh, contemporary science could meet this challenge, is to explain how some configurations of matter somehow give rise to a first person perspective on the world, right? Each one of us, we're human beings, we represent some configuration of matter and yet not every configuration of matter constitutes a first person perspective on the world. This cup of Coke is a configuration of matter, but it doesn't constitute a first person perspective on the world. Uh, so personhood is anyway uh, something almost mysterious, something somehow in principle beyond scientific explanation. And, and Rabbi Sachs' point is that this discovery that we are in the image of God has this massive ramification, the massive ramification being the universe is personal. Everything else in the Bible, says Rabbi Sachs, flowed from the attempt to make this fact the foundation of a new social order. The question became what relationships and what kind of society honor the dignity of the person? of all persons in their dependence and independence. And this is key, says Rabbi Sachs, we redeem the world to the degree that we personalize it, taming the great forces so that they serve rather than dominate humanity. The person who doesn't share the faith that Rabbi Sachs is speaking of in these quotes lives in, lives in an impersonal universe. But we were created, which means we believe that our creator uh, shares in this mysterious thing we have called personhood. And therefore to share in this faith is no longer to live in an impersonal universe. It's to have the faith that the universe is somehow personalized and we, per personal. And we sanctify that universe to the extent that we are able to personalize it, which in this quote has something to do with taming um, the powers of nature, but it's quite, it, it, I don't think it does violence to the underlying thought here to suggest that you also sanctify the world 
merely by seeing the personal in it, right? By, by looking at the world no longer as a random blind concatenation of physical uh, uh, particles um, in motion described by the blind laws of physics, but instead to look at the universe um, as the imprint uh, of a divine person. Um, that's also to sanctify the universe. So what you can see I'm doing already, and this, like I said, this is my starting point, is I'm suggesting that what we can learn from the fact that we are Tzelem Elohim, that we are in the image of God, what we can learn from this perhaps is that God is presented in the Bible as a person. And that seems to be what Rabbi Sachs wants us to glean from these sources. Um, the great, um, the great breakthrough uh, in, in Genesis chapter one, where we are described as in the image of God, the great breakthrough is uh, coming to this new worldview, a worldview in which, in which the universe is personal because it's the product of a divine person. Uh, but then the question is, is God a person? Right, uh, Rabbi Sachs, it seems to me, wants to learn from Betelem Elohim that yes, God is a person. And, and, and in fact, you've missed the whole point if you don't recognize that God is a person. You don't share even his faith if you don't, if you don't share in his conviction that God is a person. Well, of course, you'll know what I'm going to ask next. Go on, somebody, somebody throw in what am I going to ask next. Uh, before I can answer, is God a person, what do I need to know? Someone be brave. There's loads oh, what of is God? What, what in? Oh, what, what is, is a God? Person? Good, very, oh, what is a person? Very good. It was going to be one of those, right? <laughs> it's going to be one of those. Um, and the, uh, um, the question is, I'm going to look at is what, you know, what do we mean by a person? What is a person? Okay. You can, what is God was, would have been just as good. Okay. But uh, what is a person? So in some respects, John Locke, uh, the British, the English uh, empiricist, the English uh, philosopher, uh, great uh, early modern English philosopher, in some respects, he was kind of the founding philosopher in the philosophy of personhood. Um, it's very hard to come up with a philosophical topic or question that wasn't in some respect dealt with by, by Plato or the pre-Socratics or Aristotle. Um, Alfred North Whitehead said, you know, famously said that all Western philosophy is a footnote to Plato. There, there were people uh, in the Far East and in, in, in Indian philosophy that were asking similar questions, uh, but I'm not aware that John Locke was aware of them. In the Western tradition, uh, John Locke was the first philosopher, uh, I think, to investigate the identity of persons over time. Right, so the, the central the central riddle here is um, you think I am the same person um, as the four year old Sam Liebens, um, you know, who you remember running around uh, in his backyard or back garden, as we would have called it in Leicester in England. You think I am identical to that person, but we don't share very much in common, my four year old self and me, right? Um, and if you could jump into the future and see, please God, I should live so long, you see, you know, a 98-year-old uh, Sam Liebens, probably he won't share all that much in common with me. Um, so what is it that makes us all one person? Um, you might even be able to find some four-year-olds who have more in common with me than the four-year-old Sam Liebens. Uh, the four-year, you know, the four-year-old Sam Liebens was much more interested in He-Man than he was interested in Bertrand Russell. Well, maybe you can find a very precocious four-year-old somewhere uh, who's more interested in Bertrand Russell than He-Man. And if you do, uh, perhaps that precocious four-year-old would be more similar to me than than my four-year-old self. So. The question is, what is it that constitutes personal identity over time? As far as I'm aware, where John Locke was the first philosopher in the Western tradition to take that question seriously. Um, and he comes up with this definition of what a person is. A person is a thinking, intelligent being that has reason and reflection and 
can consider itself as itself. So it's not just conscious. It's also self-conscious and self-aware. It has reason and reflection. And it can consider itself, moreover, the same thinking thing in different times and places. So this is John Locke's definition of what a person is. Um, and I thought I'd share with you, I mean, the truth is, the Christian tradition long before Locke, the medieval Christian tradition, worried a bit about what person, personhood is, of course, because they have this doctrine of the Trinity, which is that they have one God who is three persons. So that, that led to a, a, a certain amount of philosophizing about personhood. We'll see what Aristotle says a person is uh, later. Um, what was new with Locke was to think about personhood as something um, extended in time uh, and to think about uh, what that means. Um, Peter Singer is another Australian philosopher, another Australian-American philosopher. Uh, he, he's a bioethicist at Princeton. Um, in his book on applied ethics, but what was it actually called? Gabby, what was that book called that I got out today? Hmm. Anyway, it's not called applied ethics. It's some, called something ethics. I can't remember the first word. Anyway, um, he wrote the following. Um, he's very, it's very, very well known and controversial philosopher. And one of the things that's most controversial about him is that um, he, well, he was at the forefront of the animal liberation movement, and um, he was he 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 was. Uh, um, responsible for popularizing the notion of speciesism, which is when we, when we prejudice one species over another for no particularly good reason. Um, he doesn't think that our being homo sapiens uh, has any particular ethical um, um, significance, but he does think that our being people has a certain ethical significance. But take this definition of Locke again, I imagine that you can imagine a dolphin uh, being a thinking, intelligent being with reason and reflection, which can consider itself as itself and as the same thinking thing in different times and places. For all that we know about dolphin psychology, yes, dolphins probably do um, meet John Locke's definition of personhood. And Peter Singer is quite happy with that. Dolphins are people too, according to uh, Peter Singer. And though it's not okay to be speciesist, it's not okay to um, prejudice one species over another uh, without any other reason other than kind of uh, species identity, it is okay, uh, all other things being equal, to prejudice people over non-people. Why? What's so kind of valuable about personhood. Well, um, here are two quotes uh, from Peter Singer, uh, two, two separate paragraphs. The first goes like this. A professor of philosophy may hope to write a book demonstrating the objective nature of ethics. A student may look forward to graduating. A child may want to go for a ride in an airplane. To take the lives of any of these people without their consent is to thwart their desires for the future. So part of what it means to be a person is to see yourself as extended in time. And because you see yourself as extended in time, you have desires for the future. And therefore, when you kill a person, you thwart those desires for the future. That's ethically significant. Killing a snail or, and you can see how controversial Peter Singer can be sometimes, killing a day-old infant does not thwart any desires of this kind. Of course, a, a day-old infant may one day become a person, okay? But at that stage in their development, they are not yet a person. And if you were to kill a snail or a day-old infant, doing so doesn't thwart any desires of this kind because snails and newborn infants are incapable of having such desires. According to Peter Singer, as I said, a newborn infant is not yet a person. So if you had to make a decision to save a person 
or a newborn baby, if you were, if you were thrust into that uh, sort of situation, all other things being equal, and they rarely are, but all other things being equal, you should choose the person over the newborn baby. Another thing he says, I know that I have a future. I also know that my future existence could be cut short. A snail doesn't know that it has a future. It probably doesn't conceptualize in those terms because it's not a person. But I know that I have a future. I also know that my future existence could be cut short. If I think that this is likely to happen at any moment, my present existence will be fraught with anxiety and will presumably be less enjoyable than if I do not think it is likely to happen for some time. What I want you to notice here is the reason that Peter Singer thinks personhood is ethically significant isn't merely because of the things Locke says. It's not just because they're intelligent beings that have reason and reflection and consider themselves themselves over time. It's that they have desires. It's that they have fears. It's that they have anxieties. So it seems as if what makes a person uh, or what makes personhood ethically significant um, requires that persons have a kind of emotional investment in their identity, is that a person has a set of uh, desires, you could put it that way. Um, and in fact, we're going to come back towards the end of these uh, three classes um, to the thought of uh, Rabbi, Rabbi Heschel, Rabbi Abraham Yoshua Heschel. Um, but my view for these lectures about what, it, what is personhood is going to be drawn from him. He never says it quite as explicitly as this, but it's drawn from him. Um, a person is something that has logos, pathos, and ethos. And I'm going to explain what those three things mean. And sadly, they don't mean exactly what the, uh, the English dictionary on my bookshelf says they mean. Um, I, I'm following here the kind of usage of these words that Rabbi Heschel um, pioneered, rather than their kind of classic dictionary definition. So a logos is something like a set of beliefs. But here, in order to distinguish it from ethos, I mean, just a set of beliefs about the world that are in no way normative or ethical. Just, you know, London is the capital of England. Um, two and two is four. You know, the set of, of non-moral beliefs that you have, that's your logos. Pathos um, is used to describe something like your emotional world. And in particular, I mean, um, your emotional responsiveness to the world and your pathos and your ethos interact with one another because your ethos are your values. So you have a set of values. And when you see things in the world that conform to your values, um, because you have this thing called pathos, this kind of responsiveness to values in the world, you're happy. And when you see things that are um, in conflict with your ethos, in conflict with your uh, values, when, you come, when your logos comes to believe that the world is in conflict with your ethos, with your values, you feel uncomfortable, you feel upset, maybe angry. That's your pathos. Now you can imagine a, you know, you can imagine a Spock-like computer uh, or a data-like computer, I've got, got to get my sci-fi references right, but you could imagine a computer that has a set of beliefs and even has a set of values, but doesn't have any kind of in, uh, emotional investment. So it has a logos and an ethos um, without a pathos. Um, you could imagine something that has an ethos and a pathos, but no logos. You have values and, and you're very emotional, but you, you, for some reason you find it hard to form beliefs about the world. Um, I wanna say for our purposes, that what it means to be a person is to have all three of these things. And yeah, we could add in lock as well. You can add in that it needs to be extended in time um, and to think of itself as extended in time. I'm not certain 
that that's required because God may or may not be extended in time. And that's a question we might come back to. We might just leave it to one side. Some people think that God is in, entirely outside of time. Some people think God is somehow stretched out in time, just like we are. Um, whatever your thoughts on that, um, I think that God can't be a person unless he has a logos, a pathos, and an ethos. Um, I get that from the last slide even, before, before this one, which is that what it, what, what's valuable about this notion of personhood is that there are desires there, desires you know, uh, oriented towards the future. There are anxieties there. And this helps to make the notion of personhood, this helps to set um, um, a human and a snail apart, right? Uh, in an ethically significant, in an ethically significant way. Um, so it's so it's not enough to be an intellectual being. There needs to be pathos. There needs to be ethos uh, to be a person. And I'd say God couldn't be a person if he didn't have all three of these. And I'll stay neutral as to whether he needs to be extended in time. Um, um, if you want to be an orthodox Lockean, then God will need to be extended in time to be a person. I'll leave that to one side. Now, what you need to know about Aristotle um, is Aristotle define, defined the human being? And really he was defining Homo sapien here uh, as, a, as a rational animal. Now, clearly Aristotle had a, uh, a different group of friends than I do, because if I had to define uh, what we all have in common, I'm not sure I'd say that we all have in common being rational, but apparently uh, Aristotle only had very rational friends. There are lots of animals that are not human beings but according to Aristotle, they are not rational. And there are rational beings that are not animals. Uh, for instance, Aristotle thought that there were these things called the separate intellects, these kind of, they're, they're almost like angelic beings um, that are rational, but they're not animals. Man is unique. Man is that one being, which is both an animal and rational. And if you are both of those things, you are a human being. And if you are, if you are, uh, not one of them, then you are not a human being. Now, why did I share Aristotle's view? Because um, even though we are now almost halfway through the first class, what I really wanted this first class to be about is the Rambam's approach, Maimonides' approach to our question, is God a person? Okay. Um, now, Rambam isn't going to follow Rabbi Heschel, uh, that would be anachronistic. And the Rambam isn't going to follow Peter Singer or uh, John Locke, that would be equally anachronistic. But we shouldn't be too surprised to see the Rambam following along from Aristotle. So unlike Rabbi Sachs, when the Rambam sees these words, Selem Elohim, he thinks immediately in terms of rationality, because God isn't an animal, right? Um, man is a rational animal. And if there's something we share with God, it's not animality, so it must be rationality. And indeed, so here's a huge uh, piece of text. They always say you should never do that uh, on a PowerPoint, so forgive me. Um, but what we're going to do together is we're going to learn uh, together um, a good chunk of the first chapter of the first volume of the Guide to the Perplexed of Maimonides. And it's this, the very first topic he jumps into is, is what does the word tselem, image, mean in the Bible when it says that God created us in his tselem, in his image? So he writes, some have been of the opinion that by the Hebrew tselem, the shape and figure of a thing is to be understood. And this explanation led men to believe in the corporeality of the divine being. You know, we have a shape. And we are made in the image of God, so God must have a shape too, says, says Maimonides, for they thought that the words, uh, we're reading the English here because the original, normally I'd like to share Hebrew texts, but the original was in Arabic, so I don't see any reason to share um, uh, one translation over another in particular. So we're just going to read uh, the English together. Anyway, they made this mistake thinking that God has a body because they thought that the words let us make man in our tselem in our image, implied that God had the form of a human being, i.e. that he had figure and shape. 
and that consequently he was corporeal. He had a body, arms, legs, a head, a torso, just like people do. They adhered faithfully to this view, and they thought that if they were to relinquish it, they would eo ipso reject the truth of the Bible. Look, we're from Jews. We, we see it says we're created to Elohim must be that God has a body just like us. And, you know, I don't want to reject the Torah, so I better go on believing that. And further, if they did not conceive God as having a body possessed of face and limbs similar to their own appearance, they'd have to deny even the existence of God because, you know, either there is this thing that created us in, our, in, in his Tselem, or there isn't. And if there is, then he must have a body like ours. And if there isn't, then he doesn't exist. The sole difference which they admitted was that he excelled in greatness and splendor and that his substance was not flesh and blood. So that their idea was that God had a body, but it was just much more marvelous than ours. Um, and it was made of stuff that's more marvelous than flesh and blood. But it still had something of the same form as our body. Uh, thus far went their conception of the greatness and glory of God, the incorporeality of the divine being, the non, which means the non-physicality, the incorporeality of the divine being and his unity, I see as a question I'll come back to in a minute, uh, in the true sense of the word, for there is no real unity without incorporeality, will be fully proved in the course of the present treatise. Later on, says the Rambam, I'm going to prove to you that God um, that God isn't, a, that God has no body, um, and that, that you can't be perfect if you have no body. So somebody asked from Facebook, does God have pathos? Well, that's going to be the question. And I appreciate somebody from Facebook asking that. Um, a major, major claim of Rabbi Abraham Yehoshua Heschel in his groundbreaking work on the prophets is that yes, God has pathos. And that you can't make sense of the Jewish, especially of the Hebrew Bible, but of the Jewish tradition without saying that God has pathos and therefore God is a person. But in this week's class, we're looking at Maimonides and you're going to see that Maimonides definitely thinks that God does not have pathos. And what we're laying out, I suppose, um, are, are the terms of what will be a multi-generational philosophical debate. Um, so I hope that's a, a helpful answer or non-answer. So anyway, says, says Maimonides, as we're carrying on to learn the very opening of the Guide to the Perplexed together, he says, in this chapter, the very first chapter of the Guide to the Perplexed, it is our sole intention to explain the meaning of the words selem and demut, which is something like it's normally, uh, they both basically mean image. I hold, says Maimonides, that the Hebrew equivalent of form in the ordinary acceptation of the word, viz the figure and shape of a thing. If you're really interested in physical form, then the Hebrew word you need is to'ar, not selem. So when it says that God has created us, but selem elohim, it doesn't mean a physical form. Physical form in the biblical Hebrew, according to Maimonides, is called to'ar. Thus we find, and Joseph was of beautiful form. Yafet to'ar, right? He was beautiful in to'ar, in form and beautiful in, in appearance. And he gives other examples of the same idea. Uh, and to our physical form, says Maimonides, is not applicable to God and it isn't applied to God in the Bible. The term tselem, on the other hand, signifies the specific form. What does it mean? He's now using the word form in an Aristotelian or Platonic sense. It means that which constitutes the essence of a thing which isn't the physical shape, it's just the essence of a thing. So somehow the idea is that God and human beings share an essence. Well, what is that? No, I had been suggesting, uh, given what Rabbi Sachs said, that that essence that we share with God is personhood. That's not the way that the Rambam goes, not at all. That essence is, is as follows, in man, the form is that constituent which gives him human perception and on account of this intellectual perception. The term tselem is employed in the sentences in the tselem of God, he created him and in, in, in various other times where the notion of tselem elokim uh, 
is um, appealed to. It means we have an intellect and we can perceive the world intellectually just as God can. In the, in, the, in the terminology that I'm borrowing from Heschel, we have a logos and we have like a sophisticated logos. It's not just we have beliefs, but we can reason about those beliefs. We can acquire new beliefs to a degree and to an extent that other animals can't. We don't just have beliefs, but we can rationalize our beliefs and kind of bring them into a rational order. We share with God something like a logos. Same person, uh, Ozzy on Facebook says, if God has no pathos, then God can't be a person. That's absolutely right. I think Maimonides would say, without a shadow of a doubt, God is not a person. I'm going to try and um, make that clearer for us as we go along. But I think it's without a shadow of a doubt that according to Maimonides, God is not a person. That's supposed to be the bombshell at the end, but you've already kind of, uh, you've already got it. So let's go to the next slide. It's a continuation of the same chapter. As man's distinction consists in a property which no other creature on earth possesses, viz intellectual perception. What does he mean intellectual perception? I suppose he means this. Um, a rabbit can perceive things and form beliefs. Like the rabbit can perceive that, you know, I don't know, um, the farmer is running at him with a spade. And it might not have the concepts farmer and spade, but he, he perceives something and runs away. He perceives danger and runs away. But intellectual percep perception is, is more advanced than merely physical perception. It's not just I see something with my eyes. I can see that two plus two equals four. Uh, you know, I can see... Um, the truth of various theorems in geometry. I can see that two parallel lines, as long as you're in your Euclidean space, that two parallel lines will never meet. Uh, I, I, and I'm not seeing that with my eyes, that's intellectual perception. And that, according to the Rambam, is man's distinction on earth above all other creatures. In the exercise of this, he does not employ his senses nor move his hands or his foot. This perception has been compared, though only apparently not in truth, to the divine perception, which requires no corporeal organ. God sees without using eyes. That's at least analogous to our seeing that two plus two equals four without even counting up my fingers. I just see it. I see that two parallel lines never meet. I just see it, not using my eyes, without moving. And this is at least analogous to the divine intellect, uh, which works without any corporeal organ at all. It doesn't have a brain, doesn't have eyes, doesn't have ears. On this account, i.e. on account of the divine intellect with which man has been endowed, he is said to have been made in the form and likeness of the almighty. But far from it be the notion that the supreme being is corporeal having a material form. In other words, the entire first chapter of the guide to the perplexed wants to tell us two things. What Selam Elohim doesn't mean and what Selam Elohim does mean. What doesn't it mean? It doesn't mean that God has a physical form, a physical form that we share with him. That's what it doesn't mean. What does it mean? It means that there's some essential property that human beings have that's shared with God and that um, Essential property is intellectual perception. Now, actually, you'll notice, uh, I'll, I'll come back to the questions in a minute. Um, you'll notice that actually Maimonides equivocates here. Uh, in the final sentence, he says, on this account, on account of the divine intellect with which man has been endowed. So on in that sentence, he's saying we actually share it with God. God has it. We've got it too. Intellectual perception. But in the earlier sentence, he says that we don't really have it. We have something a bit similar to it. He says this perception, i.e. our intellectual perception, this perception has been compared to the divine perception. So 
even this comparison between God and man, um, the Rambam is cagey about drawing. And we'll see why later on he's cagey about drawing this comparison. But if you are going to draw a comparison between human beings and God, this is where you should draw it. You should say, well, we kind of have something in similar, in common, in that we both have this capacity to perceive intellectually. Okay, so let me go back to the questions. I see some questions coming in. Just wondering if you can address this in the context of Maimonides and his time and his thinking and how he drew on Greek philosophers and culture, since all of the Greek gods had human images, some exaggerated, maybe that correlates with Maimonides' writings. And uh, that's what Steve Davidson uh, um, has added to the conversation. And Nissan wants to know, would this uh, be uh, would this be the relationship of active intellect to a humans? Okay, let me, let me uh, address both of those questions. So, the key thing to recognize here, and it's going to come out more clearly uh, later on, is that first of all, Maimonides is, is dealing, uh, is, is trading in an Aristotelian conception of what it means to be a person. What it means to be a person is to be a rational animal. Um, so that's part of the Greek philosophical context in the background. Um, yes, maybe um, his antipathy towards God having a body um, comes from an antipathy towards kind of Greek paganism and Greek polytheism with its vulgar anthropomorphisms. Um, but I actually think that in this context, the Rambam was more moved by Jewish anthropo anthropomorphism. He was aware of Jews in his time who truly did believe that God had some sort of body. Uh, he wasn't making that position up. It was a position he was um, actively trying to combat. Um, I just want to open up the chat again so that I, one second, I can't for some reason. Oh, screen sharing stopped. Oh, I'm sorry, bear with me. Um, would you like me to read the questions to you? Yeah, would you do that again? Uh, would you read the first question again for me? Uh, the first one. Okay, just Thank wondering you. if you can address this in the context of Maimonides in his time and his thinking and how he drew on Greek philosophy. Oh, good, good. Yeah, the other thing I wanted to say is that one other respect in which he's drawing from Greek philosophy here is his distrust, and we'll see this more later on, of pathos. Um, there was a general, not universal, but a general prejudice in Greek philosophical thought, especially because of the Stoics who had some influence over Maimonides against emotion. Emotion was seen as being something which dilutes our thought. Emotion was seen as something that um, um, conflicts with our rationality. If anything, uh, on this Aristotelian picture that man is a rational animal, the emotions are kind of to be associated with the animal part. They come from our human body um, and they give us passions and desires and, and all sorts of unhealthy, unintellectual things. Pure intellect would be freed uh, from the clutches of emotion. Um, that's, that's going to be part of the picture that, that, that emerges uh, uh, here, and, and that, that probably has something to do with um, the Greek influence over the Rambam. So thank you for that question. In terms of the active intellect, um, yes, our, our, main, our main relationship with God, according to Maimonides, was that we are able to receive some sort of overflow of his intellect into ours. Um, and that overflow is mediated by this thing called an active intellect. For those who know what that means, great. For those who don't, it doesn't matter too much. Um, Jonathan Martin Lau asks, uh, does this mean that God's perception is distinct from ours? My thoughts are not your thoughts. Is God's perception within everything? Could God's perception be the composite of all perception awareness, or is this impersonal? We're going to see. We're going to, we, as we carry on um, the next few slides, we're going to see. We've got 15 minutes. We're going to see how um, 
Maimonides thinks about divine perception and divine knowledge, the divine intellect and how it differs from ours. But okay, what we've got from chapter one is that um, God, sorry, is, that, is, is two things. One, Tselem Elohim doesn't mean that God has a body. Two, Tselem Elohim means that in some sense, we share with God the power of intellect, Yofi. Um, so that's what it means to be Telemenokim, not to be a person. Okay. Um, I'm going to skip this. Um, I, I wanted to learn chapter two with you as well, but I realize now that um, there was never going to be enough time. Um, I'll say the following things that I wanted to share with you from chapter two. It's an amazing reading in, in chapter two of the story of Adam and Eve eating from the fruit of the tree of, of knowledge of good and evil. Um, Sandy Goldberg says, uh, is the, oh, he's happy to read it to me. Oh, that's nice. Is the concept of, uh, of image of God something that is incomprehensible? The corporeal image of God is to give us language to discuss God, but the understanding of God's image is something left undefined. That's ex I think that's exactly right, Sandy. I think that, um, Ultimately, what we have in common with God can't really be described and we'll, for Maimonides. We'll talk about that later on. And there's kind of a, a hierarchy. If you really want to be vulgar, we'll say, oh, we're made in the image of God. It's, you know, we're just speaking in human language. If you want to be a bit more sophisticated, we'll say, oh, we share an intellect. We share intellectual perception with God. That's a little bit less vulgar. But ultimately, I think the most sophisticated place you can get to, according to Maimonides, is to recognize that what we share with God is in principle unsayable. Um, and that the best we can do is what we've done, <laughs> you know, in, in, in unpacking uh, this notion of Tzalem and Lekim. What we'll see in future classes is that there are other Jewish theologies that are willing to say much more, much, much more. Um, there are other Jewish theologies, I think, which are much more in line with what Rabbi Sachs said in our opening slides. Okay, but let me just, uh, I just summarize for you what's here in chapter two. Adam and Eve eat from the fruit of the knowledge of truth and uh, of good and bad, of Tovvarah. Now, at that point, they become, it says, the snake says, you will become like gods, you will become like Elohim. And the Rambam says, no, they were already in the image of God. The word Elohim is a homonym. In, the, in biblical Hebrew, the word Elohim can also mean princes in the plural. And the snake said, if you eat this fruit, you will become like princes in that you will know the difference between tov varah, good and bad. But if before they ate the fruit, they were more perfect than after they ate the fruit, you know, the common story is they ate the fruit and there was some sort of fall so if they were more perfect before they ate the fruit, what's happening? Why is it that the knowledge of good and bad is somehow making them less perfect? Surely it should make them more perfect. And what the Rambam does in this chapter, and it's a very, very difficult chapter, is he distinguishes between two different pairs of words. There's truth and falsehood, emet v'sheker, and there's tov v'rah, good and bad. And he says, tov vera, good and bad, is always just subjective. One person finds something pretty, another finds it ugly, one finds it amenable, another finds it, you know, distracting. That's purely subjective, like nudity. There's nothing wrong with being naked, but it's culturally taboo. Before Adam ate from the fruit and before Eve ate from the fruit, their nudity was not a problem to them. Only after they ate from the fruit did it become a problem to them. And it seems to me it's a little bit difficult to explain in full, but it seems to me that the Rambam thinks as follows. Before they ate from the fruit, Adam and Eve had no ethos and no pathos. There was no such thing as, oh, that's enjoyable. Oh, I like that. Oh, I have a desire. Oh, I have a value system, except for one value, the value of truth and the, and, the, and the negative value of falsehood. 
which are the values not of ethos, but of logos. So before Adam and Eve ate from the fruit, they were like rational machines. They were more like God. They just thought in terms of true and false. Now, of course, if they had no notion of good and bad, you can ask, well, what did they do wrong by eating the fruit? Um, you can't even think about disobedience and wrongness and badness if you don't have tov vera. There are many interpretations of this second chapter of the Guide to the Perplexed, but on my reading, I think the answer is something like this. By eating the fruit and opening themselves up to ethos and pathos, they committed some sort of crime against the purity of logos. And um, it was some sort of failure in their rationality. Had they been purely rational uh, or had they been rational enough they wouldn't, they wouldn't have eaten from the fruit. Tov, tov, sorry, emet v'sheker, truth and falsehood, should have been enough. And if they were sufficiently aware of the consequences to their cognitive equipment that was going to be diluted by the evils of emotional attachment, of desire, and of ethos and pathos, they wouldn't have eaten from the fruit. And therefore, for the Rambam, um, God and humanity kind of share a logos. Ours is just a pale reflection, perhaps, of the logos of God. When we ate from that fruit, we fell and we became what, you know, Rabbi Heschel might celebrate, what, what Rabbi Sachs might celebrate, what Peter Singer might celebrate. We became people. But, um, for, for the Rambam, that was a bad thing. Um, we were more B'Tselem Elohim before we ate from that fruit. Um, now, let me carry on developing the line of thought until we get to Sandy's insight. Remember, Sandy had said to us that, you know, really, the image of God is incomprehensible. Well, that's right. Um, in, in my book, I'm sorry for the shameless self-publicity here, but in my book, um, The Principles of Judaism, I, I summarize what I take to be the key takeaway from Maimonides' negative theology, his idea that you can't really say what God is, at best you can say what he isn't. What, why does the Rambam think that? Well, I'll just read you what I wrote. I wrote the following. Maimonides formulates a number of arguments for God's existence. If these arguments are sound, then God is the first cause. This apparently entails that God cannot be composite. That means he cannot be complex. If God were composed of parts A and B, one could reasonably ask, well, what causes A and B to come together in this way? That is, there must be, if God is complex and made of parts, there must be, per impossible, a cause that is prior to God the thing that causes the parts of God to hold together. Um, and that would be absurd. And thus God must be simple. God can't have any parts. But the problem is, whenever you try to describe God, when, whenever you make a predication of God, that's to say, anytime you say any sentence of the form God is X, even if that's God is wise, even if that's God is rational, even if you predicate an essential property like God's wisdom or God's rationality or God's goodness, the grammar of your sentence makes a distinction between God and God's properties. And this is to misrepresent his simplicity. God is so abstract. Well, abstract's not quite the right word, but he's so transcendent. He's so far removed from the world that language is able to describe that every description fits more or less badly. I suppose even this description, even when I say every description fits more or less badly, is only to describe God more or less badly. Furthermore, Maimonides believed, and these parts in brackets, if you want to follow the, the references, so I'm drawing here from the Guide to the Perplexed, um, part two, chapter one, and also from the introduction to, to part two, and also from part one, chapters 51 and 52. Anyway, furthermore, if God were to fall under a species or a genus, you know, species, um, human, 
genus mammal, you know, a super genus would be uh, animal. Uh, if God were to fall under any species or genus, then that species or genus would be conceptually prior to God, just like I suppose the word human is conceptually prior to Sam Liebens. Can't understand what Sam Liebens is unless you understand what human is, and you can't understand what what uh, human is if you understand what animal is. So animal is conceptually prior to human, and human is conceptually prior to Samuel Liebens. So if God were to fall under any species or genus, then that species or genus would be conceptually prior to God. And the cosmological argument forbids this. The argument for God's existence forbids this. Maimonides' arguments for God's existence describes God nonetheless, right? Maimonides' argument for God's existence does describe God. It describes God as falling under the genus cause. So Maimonides contradicts himself because he describes God as the first cause. But if God falls under the genus of cause, then the word cause is conceptually prior to Maimonides. I argue Maimonides knows this. And that in a nutshell, Maimonides' thought is that, yes, what we're witnessing here is the breakdown of language and logic when we really try to describe God's essence. Of course, it breaks down and falls apart. We can't really do it. So as Sandy said, we don't even really share intellect with God because anything you say about God and any relation you try and draw between God and us, words are not going to do it justice. But perhaps the closest we can come to saying what it means to be in God's image is to say that, um, that, that we have an intellect. What's the point in interacting with a God so distant with this understanding? Why even assume God cares about us? Well, Sophia, that's a, a fabulous question. And we're going to come back to it again and again uh, over the next two classes. I think Rambam's um, response would be, it doesn't matter whether God cares about you. What matters is if you live in the right relation to this being, you will receive his glorious, bountiful overflow. And therefore it's in your interest to bring your life into alignment with this God. But no, this, this is not a God that interacts with you. This is not a God that in any straightforward sense cares about you. This is very far away, I think, from the God we started with in the words of, of, of Rabbi Sachs. Um, let me just see, we've got two more minutes. Um, I think, Does, does Rambam define Selem and Demut specifically? Yes, Nissan, you can go back to the first, uh, you can go back to the first chapter of um, the Guide to the Perplexed. We didn't read the entirety of that chapter. Uh, in that chapter, he gives a definition both of Selem and Demut. He thinks both of them apply to God. There's a slight difference in nuance, um, but to all intents and purposes, um, they both mean something similar. It's something like an Aristotelian form, which is not a physical shape. It's something more like uh, an essence. Um, what I wanted to do, and I think I'll probably do this at the, um, at the beginning of next week's class, is I wanted to say what it means for Maimonides to be a classical theist. There's this phrase we use, classical theism. Maimonides is a good example of a classical theist. Um, I wanted to show you the ways in which he lives up to that. I wanted to, to give a, a, um, a brief description of what it means for the God of Maimonides to have knowledge of the world, uh, given that he's so far removed from it, as Sophia points out. But we'll start next week's lecture um, with those questions. And then what we're going to try and do is see, well, what is it about this picture of, an, of a non-personal God? What is it about this picture uh, that, that we might not like? Um, are there weaknesses or objections that this picture has to face? And therefore, we'll start to develop next week some alternative pictures. And there are even classical theists like Hastai Kreskus, who we'll talk about next week, um, who thinks God does uh, in a much more robust way than Maimonides could ever accept, love us. But uh, we'll see that even Crescus's conception of 
a, a, an emotional God, a God that loves us, still falls some way short of full personhood. Um, is you know because really the question of this course is is God a person? And what we'll see hopefully in our third class is that contemporary Jewish theologians, from Rabbi Heschel to Rabbi Sachs, are in some ways more in tune with the God of the Hebrew Bible and the God of the rabbis of the Talmud and Midrash, which I will argue is a deeply personal God. And my hope is that by the end of the course, you'll understand why was it that Maimonides and to a lesser extent Crescus were pulled away from this way of thinking? And how can it be that later thinkers felt emboldened uh, to reject or rebel uh, against this very impersonal theology that emerged in medieval Jewish thought? Uh, in the meantime, thank you very much. And I look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you, thank you, Dr. Levens. This was a wonderful first class in this series. I'm really looking forward to the couple next ones. And thank you to everyone else who joined us today on Zoom, on Drisha Live, and on Facebook. We continue our full program this evening at 8 p.m. with the first of a three-part series on caring for others, the Torah, and ourselves, Jewish Perspectives on the Ethics of Care by Sarah Zager. In addition, we have many more classes happening right now. You can find out more information as well as the registration links on our website at www.drisha.org classes. And you can also watch live at www.drisha.org live. Uh, here are some of the questions that I was asked on the chat. Um, sure. The recordings are also uh, available. Uh, the recordings of all the classes are also available Great. on the website. And thank you again for this opportunity to learn with you, Dr. Levens. And Such a pleasure. Everyone. It was so lovely to see all of you. Some so old some old friends and new. I hope to see all of you soon at one of our upcoming classes, Adrisha. Me too. Bye, everybody. See you next Bye week, you I hope. Have. Take care. Thank you, Sam. You nice to see you. Bye, guys.